Amen. The preaching of God's Word is in John 10 and verse 27. This is part of Christ's answer to those Jews which said in verse 24, If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. And Christ said, I've already told you, and you believe not. You believe not because you're not of my sheep. Notice now our verse, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Of course, Christ is not speaking literally of these animals. Christ was not a literal shepherd of such creatures, but He's using this image as He began earlier in this chapter and is elsewhere used in the Scriptures as well. A shepherd of sheep. We remember a precious psalm to us, Psalm 23, The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. So using that image, which is common in the Scriptures, Christ asserts He is the shepherd of God's people. You'll notice that He sets forth this clear mark of those who are His sheep. He says, My sheep... Whatever else is true of them, whatever else is not true of them, everyone who is of my sheep is one who hears my voice and I know them and they follow me. So he's pointing out a very clear mark of those who are his own. Now, he's speaking to covenant people, the Jews. He's speaking to many that surround Him. And so in one sense, of course, they were, in one sense, God's flock. But they were not in the same way as Christ intends it here. So though all Israel, indeed all the visible church, is rightly considered the flock of God, Christ is speaking in a more spiritual way. And so some of you are familiar with the statement of the visible and the invisible church. The visible church consists of all those who make profession of faith together with their children and thus are members of the church of Christ outwardly. But when we speak of the invisible church, we mean that within that visible community of God's people and local congregations and the church of Christ throughout the world, there are those who are true believers. And that's what Christ is talking about here. Notice, just in context, He speaks of them, verse 28, as those to whom He gives eternal life. And it is of them that He says, My Father which gave them Me. So in the covenant of redemption between Father, Son, and Spirit, the Father gives to Christ the Son a people to redeem. Christ will open this even more in His high priestly prayer in John 17. So they're chosen in Christ unto salvation, which is by faith in Christ. And they are a people who will be sanctified. They follow Christ. They obey His Word. All of this is talking not merely of the visible church who make profession, who attend church, and so on, but those who are believers in Christ, who have saving faith, and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, brethren, this is an important point because this is reminding us Christ is speaking to members of the visible church. 
when he says, ye believe not, verse 26. They are people who were circumcised, they were Jews, they attended synagogue, they attend the temple. Many of them, doubtlessly here, were leaders in the Old Covenant church. And yet he says, ye believe not, you're not of my sheep. He's saying to visible members of God's people, you aren't believers. Now this should make us somewhat alert because this is setting down a very important point that within the visible church of the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be those who are not true believers. Which then raises a question, if we're of any concern, well, how do I know if that's true of me? How might I know if I'm truly a believer? If I am of Christ's sheep, not just outwardly, but truly. Well, there are many what are known as marks of grace, notes or evidences that show one is genuinely converted, one is sincerely following and believing Christ versus those things which are no signs. And so these so-called marks of grace help us examine ourselves. And as some of the prayers indicated this evening, we're looking forward, Lord willing, to the Lord's Supper. And whereas it's always right and should be something of a habitual practice for the Christian to examine ourselves as other scriptures make plain, we see that it is particularly the case when we're approaching the Lord's Supper. So 1 Corinthians 11, examine yourselves and then eat and drink. So this has to go first. Now, self-examination is indeed an exercise of the soul. We think of physical exercising and though there is a trend right now in fitness, yet there's still clear evidence that a grand majority of people don't want to lift the finger to do the difficult work of physical exercise. Well, the same is true of spiritual exercises. When people are starting to flirt with the idea of getting physically active, it's astounding to them how many excuses then can come up, how many things can be obstacles, and how many difficulties have to be overcome. Well, if that's true physically, it's all the more true spiritually. Of all the spiritual exercises you think of prayer and Bible reading and fasting and humiliation, days of thanksgiving and recounting God's mercies, public worship, secret worship, family worship, all of these things that go on, meditation upon God's Word, seeking out and examining our hearts are among the most difficult for at least two reasons. First, to do it well, we have to identify a mark of grace. And that takes some concern because so many people give false marks of grace today. And this makes us have to search the Scriptures. But then the most difficult part is we need sincerely to assess our own soul and lives in light of that mark. Now, you go to a child who wants dessert and you say, should you have this dessert? The child is going to say automatically, yes. Why? Well, because they want that. Well, the the, the posture of one's soul generally is, I want 
the things that are good. The Lord's Supper is good, so yes, I want that, so I should have it. It's far more difficult to say, I need to take the objective Word of God and assess my soul in its light to see not what I want to see, not what I saw in the past, but I need to see how it is with me right now. That is a very difficult exercise, which is doubtlessly one of the reasons that self-examination is looked down upon today. Because, simply put, people don't want to do it. It's difficult. People don't want to do difficult things. Outwardly, inwardly, physically, spiritually. It's far easier to coast along in life than it is to take up the spiritual disciplines and exercise our souls. However, the benefits of this spiritual exercise are of the highest order. So, the worst case that one might come to if they engage in searching out their souls by a mark of grace is they may discover they're unconverted. Someone says, well, I don't want to find that out. And yet, think of it. It's far better to realize and to become quite persuaded, I'm unconverted. Because now it sweeps away all of the false notions of what I should be doing and it sets before me the one thing that I must consume my life with is this issue. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And right now my soul is shown by the light of God's Word to be dead in sins. My solitary concern must be conversion. That is a tremendous privilege. We shouldn't be afraid of causing people to become alarmed. Indeed, it is our prayer that those who are asleep in Zion would become alarmed. And surely it is our desire for the same in the world. But there are other benefits. What if we're a believer? Well, we discover gracious evidence by a mark of grace. We can say, look, it's not in perfection, but it's there in truth. This mark is evident in my life. That's a testimony of God's grace to me. That I indeed have been brought to faith in Christ. What an encouragement that is. And how it confirms and strengthens our assurance in the way of salvation. But for the believer, it also does discover areas of neglect and sin and need for growth, which is of benefit to the believer as well. That the believer sees, here's where I need yet more grace and more of Christ, which does what for the believer? By God's grace, it draws the believer with more hunger unto Christ. And so, brethren, let's get this in our mind. Generally, the thing which causes us great difficulty of spiritual examining our lives, spiritually examining our lives, is actually, though difficult, something that is of great benefit to our souls. To leave off may be far easier, but it actually leaves our soul in a far inferior place. If you've not done so yet, mark down on your calendar the rest of this week a substantial time to examine your soul. Well, to help in that, we look at this mark following Christ. He's explaining Christ is why some believe not. 
And he asserts a mark, quite simple mark, that those who are his hear his voice and follow him. Notice this is universally true. He doesn't say those who are going to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, elders, deacons. He says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. So let's look at two things with this mark of grace before point or two of application. First thing we want to look at is the voice that they hear. Secondly, the response that they give. As we see these things, we'll be in a better place to examine ourselves in light of the grace of God. Well, firstly, then the voice they hear. This is quite simple as the whole verse actually is. In verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. All we have to determine then is who is speaking. We see that quite clearly. Notice in verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you believe not. And he goes on in the same uh, uh, discourse to verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. So the voice who is speaking is that voice which belongs to Jesus Christ. But this is important for several reasons. Because notice, the name is there, verse 25, Jesus. He's answering the question, Are you the Christ? Which he says, I've already told you I am. So here is the anointed Savior. This is of supreme importance because he is not an anointed like David or like prophets before him. He is the Savior, the anointed to whom all the other anointeds were pointing. So David testified that there would be one who would come after him. Moses, the great prophet, testified there would be a prophet who would come after him. And this is that prophet, that king. Think of that. When we think of anointed, we think of the threefold office of Christ. Prophet, priest, king. And so whose voice is it that they hear? This is significant. It's not subordinates' voices. It's not their own voices. It's the King's voice. The King and Head of the Church, Jesus Christ. That's the voice that matters to them. This is why, for instance, when Paul was preaching and he goes to Thessalonica, he preaches, he gets chased out, he goes to Berea, and so on, and it says that the Bereans were more noble than those of Thessalonica. Why? Because they searched the Scriptures to see if these things were so. Though the Apostle was worthy of honor as the highest office in the church appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ, yet the Bereans are commended because the Apostle is not the king. Pastors aren't the king. Ministers are servants of the king. And it's the king's voice that must be heard. And so Paul says in Ephesians, to the Ephesians who never had the personal, earthly, incarnate ministry of Christ present, that He, Christ, came and preached to you. And so the whole church of every generation is to hear the voice of the King. The King's voice. And yet this raises questions to us. How do we hear His voice? You know, Are we talking something strange like hearing voices in our head? Of course, the world can scoff and make all of their nonsense remarks, and so on. But of course, the answer is no. That's not what is meant at all. 
But we must assert this fundamental point. The voice that a converted person hears is the voice of Christ Jesus. He's the King. He's also the prophet. We have in our catechism an apt summary that as prophet, he reveals the will of God unto us for our salvation. And we see that everywhere Christ is going, He's reproving and correcting, calling to repentance, encouraging, strengthening, giving promises, directing to Himself that they might be saved. He's disclosing what otherwise would be hidden. That He's come to speak the truth. It's His voice. The prophet, the priest, the king, who is the Savior. This is significant in that the voice they're hearing is not merely of someone else telling them about the Savior. Remember the one who had gone, the woman at the well, she goes and tells others what she had heard, and they come. And then it said, we believe not because you've told us, but because we hear His voice ourselves. That's the approach of the believer. The believer is one who is held captive to the Word of Christ. This has tremendous practical instruction in that there will be times in our lives when we're put in a very difficult and awkward position. Am I going to listen to this tradition? Am I going to listen to this pastor? Am I going to listen to this person, however well esteemed, my relationship, a friend, a family member, when their message is contrary to the voice of Christ? The sheep of Christ listen to Christ's voice. This is one reason they're willing to engage in that which will be their suffering in order to follow Christ because they hear and follow His voice. What a good voice to follow. Though He does lead us at times to the valley of the shadow of death, this very notion of following, as we'll see, means that He's leading the way that we follow after. But notice... What is this voice that is heard? Well, think about what a voice is. It is that which we use to formulate sounds in such a sequence and so on that communicates our thoughts, desires, will, and so on. So it's a strange thing, a voice, isn't it? It's sound, but it's ordered sound. And it's something that infants don't have right away. They've got a voice, but it's not ordered yet. And so they make this sound and they start to learn and they listen and they're paying attention. And then moms and dads start to teach their children how to order their voice so that as they come and become more mature, they're able to uh, control their sounds so as to make certain uh, orderly sounds so as to communicate clearly what they're thinking, wanting, desiring, and so on. So a voice gives audible expression to someone's thoughts. Thus, Christ's voice is that instrument by which He gives expression of His thoughts. And so we might play a game with children or others and say, guess what I'm thinking about? And of course, they'll have to ask, you know, well, can you give me a category? We give them a category. And then they go through their guess and they get to the end. And if they don't get it, we say, well, I was actually thinking about this. And our voice discloses it. It was in our mind. It was thought about. And now we're revealing it. Well, this is what Christ's voice is. It's His revealing of what's in His mind. 
This is of the highest importance for the believer. However important a husband may be, a wife may be, a pastor may be, an elder may be, a presbytery may be, the Christian, the believer, wants to know Christ's will. That's it. That's what I want. And I'll be grateful for a spouse. I'll be grateful for a pastor. I'll be grateful for a presbytery which helps me in that. But it's His voice I must hear. I will not satisfy myself with mere reports if those reports are not disclosing to me and helping me discern Christ's will. Christ's voice is the instrument of knowing His will. Well, this directs us then to His Word. So what does our voice do? Our voice forms sounds which then give audible expressions to words. This is, of course, throughout the Scriptures. And so, of course, the voice they hear in the days of His incarnate and earthly ministry were His spoken words in His earthly ministry. So they hear the words that He speaks and they respond to that. And so you see little pictures of it. He comes to uh, John and James and says, follow me. There's His word. What do they do? They forsake their nets and they follow Him. Peter's there in the boat. If it's you, call me unto you and I'll go. Come on out of the boat. And what does Peter do? He walks on the water, right? Following Christ. They're responsive to His Word. But we would be mistaken to think that it is only His audible voice that is here intended. Because His written Word is far more than other written words. How so? We read of the Scriptures that the Word of God is living and active. One of the criticisms that came out in the Reformation and is sometimes for some reason still brought up by Roman Catholics is you have no living voice to listen to. And it reveals something about them right away. It reveals the low thoughts of Scripture they have. And it reveals the false and wrong view of men that they have. Right now, the Pope has gotten himself in hot water within his own assembly of wickedness because of certain pronouncements he's making. Who wants that kind of living voice? The Word of God, the Bible, the Scriptures of the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments is the Word of the living God whose Word is living still. It is a Word that is active. It's not a dead letter. It is transformative. It gives life. It's used of the Lord today still. And we see this, for instance, when we consider the source of the written Word. We don't have time to go into every detail, but notice just as an example, 1 Peter and chapter 1. Whose Word is the Old Testament? You would be right to say it's the Word of God. No doubt. But it's astounding to us that we miss sometimes this emphasis. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 11. If you look at verse 10, it speaks of the salvation. The prophets, speaking of the Old Testament, have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ 
which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the spirit and the glory that should follow. Whose word were the prophets speaking? It's Christ's word. Christ, by His Spirit, was giving them the words to speak so that when we read, for instance, the famous and well-known pattern and form, thus saith the Lord. And though it is the mouth of a mere man, He's speaking the Word of the true and living God. That's what we have in the Scriptures. So as we search the Old Testament prophets, we're searching the Word of Christ. We see this as well of the New Testament in 2 Peter chapter 3. Again, this isn't exhaustive, but it gives you a refresher and your own understanding of these things. The Scriptures of the New Testament indeed are the Word of God. And you see this 2 Peter chapter 3 at verse 15 when it speaks of um, that we're to account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other Scriptures. Paul's writings are writings that are of the same genus, the same kind of the other Scriptures. And so, as Paul himself says in 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is given by inspiration. It's God-breathed. This is the Word of Christ. The Word of God. And so, to consult God's Word is to consult Christ's Word. It is His Word to which we give attention as written in the Scriptures. What happens when we sing the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs of what the Lord has given us for worship? Well, we have it in Colossians in chapter 3, a passage that should be much on your mind and in your prayers as well as you draw near to worship the Lord For you have it in Colossians chapter 3 at verse 16. Paul is speaking of our souls being filled with the Spirit of God. And how is this done? What means are to be used? Verse 16, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This is the uh, triad titles of the Psalter, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so he's saying, when you sing the Psalms of David, you're singing the Word of Christ. This is why we love to sing the Psalms. People say, well, you don't sing of Christ. We say, well, we've got answers to that. We sing of Christ plenty. But we can say to them, you don't sing the Word of Christ, whereas we do. We sing the Word of Christ. This is why it's so precious to us. Because it's the voice of Christ, the Word of Christ, which He's given to us to enjoy and by which then we mature and grow and we are instructed how it is we are to follow Him. So a couple things before we pass on. It is to be noted very clearly, believers follow Christ as He has made Himself known by His Word. And so there's the objective 
means before us. The Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments we've seen. The Old Testament is the Word of Christ. The New Testament is the Word of Christ. It's the Word of Christ. That's what we give attention to. That's what believers hear. The Bible. And so some people say, well, that's you know this extreme biblicism and bibliolatry and so on, as if we're worshiping the Bible. And we say, no, 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 you've got it quite wrong. The reason we so highly esteem the Bible is because it's the Word of our King. It's our King we esteem. And it's His Word He's given us. So you're wrong to make us in some way divorce the Bible from the King. It's rather that this Word is the King's Word. That's why we esteem it. For you to do otherwise and say you want Christ but not the Bible or not that part of the Bible is to divorce Christ from His Word. We treasure Christ and so we treasure His Word. Notice also, it's not your conscience you listen to. Now we need to be careful. Our conscience is given us as a faculty to help guide us. But our consciences can be wrong. We can have weak consciences. We can have misinformed consciences. We can have overactive consciences. Our consciences must be brought under the Word of Christ and informed by it. And so it's good to have a very active conscience so long as its activity is governed by the Word of God. And so Christ's Word is what guides us. Culture doesn't guide us. It's Christ's Word. Inner feelings don't guide us. It's Christ's Word. Visions and dreams don't guide us. It's Christ's Word. Tradition doesn't guide us. It's Christ's Word. We say this with care. Not even the church is what guides us. It's Christ's Word. Now praise God that in the church, which is the pillar and ground of truth, He's given His Word. But it's this reason that the Word is so central to the true church's activity and service because the Word is Christ's Word. This is the voice that the believer hears. So, simple question to consider to help you examine yourself. Is that what you listen to? Christ's Word. Or is it so that a pastor says it, so that's sufficient. A husband says it, that's sufficient. A wife says it, that's sufficient. This said it, this said it, that said it. But you aren't seeing it in Christ's Word. The believer is helped by those assistants. But it's the Word of Christ that they listen to. Secondly, what's the response they give? Christ says, they follow Me. It's a simple word accessible to us right away. It is that they walk the road that Christ leads them along. Now this is important because He doesn't say they merely know the way I go or would have them to walk. He says, they follow Me. That, of course, more than implies, it's a direct statement, that they are then walking in the way of Christ. So, in other words, it's not that they're merely approach and say, well, what do you think Christ says about this? Oh, I know what Christ says about this, this, and the other. What's your life like? Well, I don't live that way. Well, that's not following Christ. It's not enough to say, well, I'm earnest about principles and practice and so on, and yet it's all theoretical and verbal and not actual in your life. That's not following. To follow Christ 
is to give reality to the uh, doing as Christ says to do, the following, the walking, the road that Christ leads us along. There are a couple ways we can look at this to help us. One, they follow His promises. His promises are expressions of His purpose for good to our souls. And you can think of a promise in this way. Christ is saying, here's the way for you to believe. Here's the way to come, as it were, that you might have access to the provision I give. And so He teaches us to trust Him in trial. And He gives us promises that He'll never leave us nor forsake us. And to follow Christ means that in the midst of the trial, we're looking to Him, saying, I trust that He'll care for me. Or we read in John, uh, John's epistle that if we sin and we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so we take His promise and we say, oh, I've discovered the sin. And so now I come unto you and I confess my sin, trusting you to forgive me. That's following His promises and many more promises of sanctification and purity and growth and maturity and the increase of grace and all these things. When a a shepherd is saying, here's where you're going to find food, the sheep then follows after that. Well, promises are like food to the soul where Christ is saying, here's what your soul needs and I give it and the sheep follows Him. But of course, Christ is seemingly emphasizing that they follow His commandments. Following has this activity behind it, doing and carrying on and so on. And of course, to follow Christ's commandments is to follow Him. Because you can think of a shepherd, what's the shepherd doing as they lead? They're saying, come this way. Sometimes they have to use the rod. No, no, not that way. Push it along. And so there's the voice. There's the rod of discipline at work. There's the leading Christ does all of that perfectly. What is there that Christ calls us to do that He Himself didn't do? Now we might be clever and say, well, He calls us to repent and He never repented. Well, that's true. He never did. But what is repentance? Repentance is the turning from sin unto holiness, walking in the way of righteousness. And surely Christ walked in the way of righteousness. And so He's calling us who have gone off course to get back on course and follow Him. And He calls us to sacrifice things. Well, what did Christ sacrifice? We could better ask, what did He not sacrifice? He was willing to endure torment and suffering and ridicule and uh, being misunderstood and sleepless nights and long days and prayerful service and answering questions and dealing with difficulties and trials and afflictions. And He calls us to do the same. He calls us to bear our cross and so on. And yet the cross He bore was far superior to our own. So He leads us by example. And yet He also commands us to do that. And so to follow His commandments, think of how that blessed promise is given of Christ in Matthew 11 as He says, Come unto Me, all you that uh, are weary and labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then immediately following, he says, verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. This notion of yoke could imply being yoked with him. It certainly means the yoke he gives. And so a yoke was then to govern and guide and direct the creature unto usefulness according to the master's will. 
And this is what Christ is saying. He's saying, learn of me. And what a blessed thing that he's not cruel. I'm meek and lowly in heart and so on. This is what is behind, of course, Christ's reproof in Luke 6 when he says, why call ye me Lord, Lord, and what? Do not what I say. You're not doing what I say because obedience following me is a mark of being my sheep. Right? So, the point is, the response that the sheep give is not just that they hear and recognize the voice, but as Christ says, my sheep hear my voice and follow me. They obey, they keep my commandments. Someone says, but wait, isn't it sufficient to acknowledge that Christ is the Lord? Well, we read, of course, in Romans that uh, the one who professes with their mouth that Jesus Christ the Lord and believes in their heart that God raised them from the dead, they shall be saved. But remember what Christ is getting at. It's not an empty profession. It's a profession that when tested will prove itself. So what does the testimony Lord mean? Well, it includes His divinity. He is Adonai, the great God. But it does indeed include the notion of ruler. He's the king. And so this is why Christ says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter into heaven. Why? Because they said it, but they weren't actually believing it and living accordingly. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. There will be many who say it, but there will be fewer who do it. So here's the point. The response they give is a believing and gracious obedience to His revealed will. They don't search into their hearts and say, what do I feel like doing? Because if that's where you're going to go, your feelings will fail you again and again. Oh, there will be times when feelings are large and they're seemingly, for a season, invincible until they aren't and they fail. And then we're stuck in the doldrums of a feelingless moment. The believer hears Christ's Word and says, that's what I'm governed by. That's what I believe. That's what I trust. That's what I follow. Why is it that they give this response? Well, they're His. Christ says, my sheep. And He says, I know them. Notice, it's a context of relationship. Many of you have read or perhaps even seen examples of shepherds that led their flocks, and many will make note that you, know, you look at some, particularly Muslim and other Middle Eastern uh, peoples who shepherd and they sort of drive the flock from the back. And yet you see Jewish shepherds often leading their flock from the front by calling them. In our own heritage, Scotland is known in many ways still as a nation which had many flocks and pastures And some of our own uh, brothers and sisters had that experience of shepherding sheep and taking their sheep to market. And this whole field filled with all these different sheep of different shepherds. And then literally, you can see video of this, a shepherd stands up and gives the call. And his sheep come out of that massive flock to him. And another shepherd stands up and gives his call. And his sheep, all interspersed within this other mixture, comes unto him. It's astounding. But why is it they're doing that? 
because they know the voice of their shepherd. They've been with him. He's cared for them and so on. That's what Christ is saying. They hear my voice and they follow me. Why? Because they're mine and I know them. I love them. They love me. We're together in this in a great blessed fellowship. They're His by gracious election. He says, My Father gave them me. And they're His by gracious love. I know them. So on. Well, here is a great treasure then shown to us. The Word of Christ. If you and I didn't have the Word of Christ, we may be comparatively righteous to other men and women, but we would never have a chance of being Christ's people. For a moment, just think, though it's well beyond the scope of our purpose, how necessary it is to support those causes that get good translations of the Bible to nations and tongues that don't have it because it's by His Word that He calls His sheep unto them. What a privilege then that God has been so rich and full to give us His Word. Then that gets us to the purpose of our evening to examine yourself. A series of questions to ask as we close. First is, is your profession and obedience, however outwardly displayed, is it because of Christ and His Word? Or is it because of family or culture or church, tradition, convenience, because you don't want to be seen to be out of order? See, those are different reasons. Christ doesn't say, my sheep hear my voice and they do what I say because of outward constraints. It's a more direct link. They hear my voice, they follow me. The link is His voice to our action. That's the mark of grace. It's not the mark of grace because, oh, someone's watching me right now. Or, oh, my spouse would rather be pleased that I do this. Or my parents would rather have me do this. Or the pastor would rather have me do it. All of those can be encouragements and so many spurs, as it were, to prick us along. But the drawing cause is Christ and His Word. I want to worship Him because of His Word. I want to spend time with Him by His Word because it's His. I want to search my soul and discover sin and cut it off. Not because it's some tradition that's been inherited in our heritage, but because Christ calls me to it. I want to prepare myself for the Lord's Supper. Why? Not because it's honorable in the eyes of some, but because it's Christ's Word. I want to be a wife that's faithful and submits to my own husband. Why? So that others would see me as that? No, because Christ calls me to it. I want to be a husband who loves my wife and serves her and cares for her. Why? So that Christ's Word would be honored. The whole of the focus of the believer is Christ's Word, which also then causes true believers to refine things. Maybe it's been that we've been too much upon the scaffolding of others and we've contented ourselves to say, well, they figured it out, so that's how I'm going to go. Well, we bless God and praise God that there are those greater than we in gifts and knowledge and graces that have helped us, but we want to follow Christ's Word ourselves. That's why the lowliest Christian prioritizes God's Word. To read it, to hear it, to memorize and meditate upon it because that's the voice they want to hear. 
They'll be thankful for a wife that has encouraged them, a husband that has encouraged them, a pastor that has encouraged them. But the overwhelming desire for the Christian is the direct knowledge of Christ's Word Himself. Think for a moment. This is actually entirely opposite of false religion, which is all mediated through mere men. So you have Roman Catholicism and the priest. You have all the wise men of Eastern religions and so on. They're the go-to. Whereas true religion is a religion that calls you to deal with God's Word. Not dispensing with the means of grace, but ever acknowledging that they are but means by which we come to know the will of God in accordance to His Word. So examine yourself. Is my profession of faith more with an eye to pleasing someone else, more with an eye to custom and tradition and heritage, my obedience, my walk, what I'm not doing, what I am doing, is it more because of outward pressures or is it because of Christ's Word? The believer may be supported by the other things, may indeed be hemmed in by the other things, but the believer, as Christ says, hears Christ's Word and follows it. We can go further regarding your obedience. Is it comprehensive to the Word of Christ? Or is it selective to certain parts of His Word? And so to hear His voice is to hear what He's revealed. Now, we may be ignorant of many things because we've not been so far exposed to all the Word of God, but that's a culpable ignorance. If you can read and you have breath, you have the ability to read God's Word. If you have ten minutes a day in spare time, which however pressed we might be, that's ten minutes we should be pouring our souls into the Word of God and seeing it as it were instruct us to learn, to glean, to listen, and so on. We prioritize the means of grace, the preaching of God's Word. Why? Because it's one preeminent means whereby He's helping us see His Word. Now, this will help expand our knowledge base of the Scriptures, but then that will present to us a question. As my knowledge of Christ's will expands, is my obedience to what's revealed conforming? Or am I content to say, well, that's neat, but I'm going to be selective. I don't really want to do that yet. I want to follow this. Christ will, so soon as it comes, is a word that calls us to obey. Another way of looking at this is, is your obedience growing or has it stagnated? You, know, you can think of a river and the water follows the course of the riverbed. And yet if you dam it up well enough, it'll stagnate at least for a season. Of course, true river will keep going, but you get the notion, the idea. If you divert some of the water and then you cut off the diversion, that water that's been diverted into a pool will stagnate. Though it was once following the course of the riverbed, now it's been misdirected and it stagnates. It becomes filled with scum and so on. So this is important. Don't look backwards to examine what was I doing last year, five years, ten years ago, and be content with that. Right now, is your soul growing in obedience or is it stagnated? 
Well, brethren, as you take these questions up, you'll discover, are you His? Are you not? If His, then surely you have cause to give thanks because the only reason you hear His voice and follow Him is as He Himself said, because His Father has given you to Him and He gives you eternal life. And so as you discover this mark, you say it's not perfect. God forgive me for its imperfection, its sin. But I see it sincerely that I'm learning to walk after His way. This is a cause for praise. To the extent that you discover imperfections, that is a need for confession of sin. It's not merely a need for sorry. The world is satisfied with sorry. The Bible calls for confession. Those are entirely two different things. Oh, I'm sorry I failed you. Well, okay. Now ask forgiveness. The Bible is not content. God is not content with your feelings. You understand that? Judas had feelings galore. He was overwhelmed with grief. He killed himself because he was swallowed up by it and he went to hell. Your feelings in that sense, don't matter. Certainly our feelings should be appropriate to what's going on, but if they don't issue us unto God to say, forgive me, I've sinned against you, well, brethren, we have great problems. If you discover sin, go to Him. Confess the sin. But do more than that. Say, you're my shepherd. Lead me. Bind me up. Correct me where needed. Govern me. Direct me and instruct me that I might walk in the way of Your commandments. And if you find indeed that you have to say, I'm not. I'm not following His voice. What a blessed thing it is that God would discover that to you that you be not deceived. And what a blessed thing it is that Christ calls upon unruly and wicked sinners to turn to Him for salvation. Would you stand with me?